with your head bowed for a moment as we commit our hearts to receiving the word of the Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the charge that we've just heard, the exhortation and encouragement to take more seriously, more faithfully, our calling as believers. I pray, Lord, as we open your scriptures even now, and as we read more of your command and your encouragement to us through this love letter, your word, that it might move us to action by the Spirit's use of its power to stir within our hearts commitment and faithfulness, indeed obedience of the faith among the nations, as your servant Paul called for. May we be, Lord, the church faithful in our day and age, as the lineage of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been faithfully handed to us by those who've gone before. May we be equally faithful and more so to pass it on to our children, to whoever you would call. For we know that there are many in this city whom you have called. Lead us to them, and may we be faithful, even as we pray for your church abroad in Venezuela and rejoice with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are rejoicing at the Spirit's moving in that land. May we experience, Lord, a similar call and similar fruit as we endeavor to dig in with the plowshare of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the fallow ground of this American soil. For the namesake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand as you're able. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We'll read verse 29 through to 16, verse 4. The title of this morning's message is curious. It's Mercy or Magic. Mercy or Magic. That title borrows an idea from this context where there were those who sought a sign from Christ without Christ Himself and who He was. They were those who were willing to be amazed by something spectacular that is to say, but not to lay down their lives in service and in sacrifice for Jesus Christ, our Lord. So stand with me if you would and let us read Matthew 15. Again, verse 29 through 16, verse 4. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And the great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowds wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seen, and they glorified the God of Israel. Verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples answered him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, and after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat 
and went to the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In this brief section of the story of the Gospel as Matthew records it, we have the narrative moving through chapter 15 into chapter 16, and we can read between the lines of this chronicle and realize the situational sovereignty, if you will, in four details in the record. The situation has been sovereignly ordered, as all of the Gospels have, to teach us more than just the events on their face value. In behind, behind and underneath and between, the Spirit has organized these circumstances to preach to us more than, again, the face value of the words, but indeed the power of God to organize and to proclaim the Word of God through Jesus Christ our Lord at every possible situation, circumstance, and juncture. And I want to venture in the next two messages to just cover four details. First, there is the matter of the route or route. Jesus took to get from point A to point B. Jesus travels a particular path that leads him through some curious territory by a curious way. We'll cover more of that later. Secondly, there's a repetition of the feeding of the thousands. You'll remember several chapters ago, there was the feeding of the 5,000, and now curiously, there's another feeding of thousands. 4,000 are here recorded receiving food Sovereignly from Christ's hand. Thirdly, there's the region or setting. That is the area, the situation, the place where these miracles are unfolding. And with particular attention, again, in next week's or in a few weeks in the message, we'll cover some of the significance of that. And fourthly, and the theme of this morning's message, is the reaction to Christ. What can we learn by how? Those who hear Christ's words react to what He says. In contrast, in form, that is, the Pharisees versus the disciples, and more importantly, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees and scribes versus the crowds as represented by the Canaanite woman. There's a contrasting form of the reaction to Christ. Those who interact with Him at this juncture in His ministry. And it is with this category which we'll deal with today. Let's leave the others aside for a moment and consider a few questions in relationship to this theme. Consider the following. In your approach to Christ, do you glorify or do you test Him? In your approach to Christ, do you glorify Him or do you presume to test Him? Secondly, when considering the person and work of Jesus, do you marvel or do you question? Do you marvel or do you question? Thirdly, are you admittedly 
poor in spirit, embracing with humility the desperate neediness of your salvation? Or are you self-sufficient? Are you a self-confident skeptic? Again, in beseeching Christ, and in keeping with the title this morning, are we more interested in mercy, the undeserved grace and favor of our God, or are we interested in magic? Power, entertainment, spectacular intervention for our sake, not for Christ's, as if we earned it or deserved it. When we survey, in short, the characters in this narrative that we've just read, who would we rather be? This was a question we raised in our family devotions this week. Who would you rather be, I ask you this morning, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the disciples, or the crowds? The crowds as represented by the Canaanite woman who we spoke of last week. And so with that introduction, let me give you a heading. Notice the contrast in the following. First of all, petition. What is asked of Christ? Notice the difference in how the Pharisees approach Christ, what they ask of Him, and what those, the humble crowds, the desperate, poor, and needy, how they approach Christ. Secondly, notice the contrast in proclamation or answer. What is the difference between how Christ answers the crowds in their desperate state and how Christ answers the Pharisees in their pride and self-importance? Thirdly, notice the difference in providence or sufficiency. There's both a claim to sufficiency that the Pharisees have made, and there's a claim to sufficiency that Christ has made. And fourthly, notice the contrast of persuasion. That is, the predisposition of the people or the attitude and response of the people relative to Christ. In relationship with Christ, notice the contrast between those who glorify the God of Israel and those who are spoken of by Christ as an evil and adulterous generation. First of all, petition, the approach of people to Christ. Notice under these headings several phrases. The first will be bringing with them a key phrase to illustrate the petition, the approach of the people to Christ is how they came to Him and who came with them. In verse 29, again we read, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and He went up on the mountain and sat down there. Verse 30, And great crowds came to Him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at His feet, and He healed them. Who did these people bring with them as they approached Christ? The offering they had to bring, the company they kept, were the outcasts, the broken, the the weary, the maimed, and the dysfunctional. They brought with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, which in my understanding, based on the commentaries, means not redundantly or not to repeat lame, but the deformed, those who have some crippling abnormality from birth, and the mute. And many others they brought as well. But these four distinctives are mentioned in part 
I submit to you for their metaphorical value. What the people were suffering from in their physical condition was a metaphor of what all of us suffer from in our spiritual condition. In our spirit, in our state, in the deadness of our sin, we are the lame, we are the blind, we are the crippled and deformed, we are the mute. We are those who are unable to make our way to Christ, unable to see Him should He pass even closely by, unable, deformed, and crippled, unable to carry out His calling for us, and mute, unable to communicate, to articulate, and to speak that which God created our very lips and vocal cords to proclaim. Thus, the approach of the people to Christ, that is, the attitude and the heart they came in, is partially underscored by noting the company that they kept and the condition they were in when they approached Christ. This was a desperate, motley crew, a throng of the outcasts and dysfunctional, little to work with, indeed nothing worthy of writing home about by man's standards. But these were the ones who knew that they indeed were poor in spirit. Christ had said in anticipation of the rest of his message, the kind of hearers upon whom the words of the kingdom of heaven would land like precious seeds in fertile soil when he opened up his mouth and spoke to the crowds made up of many like we see here in chapter 13 again in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Before he had said this, the gospel writer had recorded for us in the preceding verses the kind of company that was there surrounding Christ, who is his congregation made up of at that particular time, well, having gone through all of Galilee and teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. His fame went out and spread throughout all Syria. We read in verse 24, And listen to who the people brought, the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed with demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea, from beyond the Jordan. Thus, this was the approach of the people to Christ. They were the humble, the meek, the lowly, the poor in spirit, that hung on his every word, that valued his healing power, that truly saw with eyes to see what Christ revealed in his messianic healing power meant for their condition. But again, this message is noticing the contrast. It's framed around identifying the contrast. There are two types of people that heard Jesus' message in this particular section. There were those who were bringing with them, those like them, the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute. But there were also those who, were fo- who would follow this event, interaction, who would come to test him. And notice in contrast the approach of the Pharisees and Sadducees to Christ. Chapter 16, 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and so on. He says, continuing in verse 3, And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. These were those who came to try him, to test him. They presumed themselves to be the skeptical, cynical judges to see if he indeed met their standards and terms of what they thought they wanted and demanded and ought to see in a Messiah. Jesus immediately, upon reading the condition of their heart, unveiled the hypocrisy of unbelief by this illustration, by analogy. These Pharisees and Sadducees were hypocrites through and through, and Christ has said as much. And He illustrates the hypocrisy of their unbelief by telling them that they recognize signs in practical, day-to-day happenings and in circumstances all the time. If you want to know, for instance, with a good deal of certainty what the weather is going to be like tomorrow, be mindful of the sun. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. I submit to you it's as true now as it was then. People make life decisions, faith-based decisions. They make judgment calls about, everything, about anything and everything on a daily basis based on their experience, based on circumstances, based on what they have heard by way of advice from the counselors they surround themselves with. They visit those things and they consider them and they make their decision. Everyone who is alive does this to a certain extent. They interpret the signs of those things that they place faith in and they decide, I will go here today and do this. I will go there. I will wait until tomorrow to do so. This is the way humans react to their environment and to their decision-making process. And the question of hypocrisy is raised when Jesus brings to our attention how much more sign and stamp of authenticity do we see in His miraculous works and the delivery of His holy word, and the testimony of His faithfulness than anything else in life. The believer is a hypocrite because he believes in something other than Christ with infinitely less reason to do so. Has he ever been wrong? Has he ever failed himself? Can he see into the future? How can he know anything with certainty if he relies on a standard as fickle as that? These are the kinds of people that approach Christ to test him. These are the people who approach Christ as if they were God, a superior authority. Yet the hypocrisy of their unbelief is palpable in light of what Christ has done. He has healed the lame. He has opened the eyes of the blind. He has given us each and every breath in our lungs. He has caused the world to bloom and to produce fruit. He has brought rain on the just and the unjust. He has opened up mouths. He's caused eyes to see. He's granted you your health. He's preserved your family line. He's given you a measure of peace. He's brought you here safely today. Worship Him. Worship Him. Do not cower from approaching God in poverty of spirit and humble submission and glorious accolades of worship 
prayer and praise because you, believer, have no reason to do so. And indeed, that message is true for the unbeliever as well. Our approach to Christ ought to be free of the hypocrisy of unbelief, recognizing we have no good reason to doubt Him because He has given gracious reason to believe. The approach of the people to Christ is also evident in this phrase, at His feet. It's a beautiful phrase. Verse 30, again, chapter 15, The great crowds came to Him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. What did they do with those among them that were struggling so? They put them, they brought them, they placed them at Jesus' feet. In the language of Scripture, the feet of someone is illustrative of their authority and submitting to them as king. We read in throughout Scripture that heaven is the Lord's throne and the earth is indeed His footstool. We see the beautiful picture of worshipful submission of the woman who washed Christ's feet with her hair. And here we see in this picture that these people brought their need and their brokenness to the feet of the king of the kingdom of God. They had nothing more to offer than their own sickness, weakness, darkness, sin, and depravity. They had nothing more to plead, nothing else to plead aside from His mercy. Have mercy, O Son of David. Have mercy, O glorified God of Israel, on me, a broken, sick, mute, blind, lame, troubled, oppressed, depraved individual. These people sought for mercy, not for magic. They didn't just want the power. They came to worship. They didn't just want the benefit. They humbled themselves in prayer. Maybe not everyone, but remember, this group, this crowd, is following a message of a single woman who received the greatest accolades from Jesus Christ that any one of us could possibly imagine when he said in verse 28, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. I submit to you this Canaanite woman, this outcast, this ethnically unprivileged individual, this broken woman, desperate and crying, seeking out the son of David, her Lord, was a representative of those in the crowds who had a similar approach to Christ. They were the ones who came not to test Him, but to bring them their brokenness. They were the ones who demanded of Him nothing, only laid themselves at His feet and asked in humble submission for the King of the kingdom of God to be merciful unto them and to bring healing to their body. And for many I trust also their soul. Fourthly, under this approach of the people to Christ, we see again by contrast that the Pharisees and Sadducees, when they came to Christ, they did not come to His feet. No, they came to Him in the opposite spirit and demanded of Him a sign. They said to test Him, they asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. In Matthew 4, verses 5-7, through 7, we see the kind of, of sensibility they were aligning themselves with. 
In this section of Scripture, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, we read, Then the devil took him, Christ, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, that is, Jesus said to Satan, mind you, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So again, I ask, in what approach and what attitude of spirit do we come if we ever presume this kind of wickedness to come to Christ to test him. We indeed are allies with Satan in the spirit of the Antichrist saying, prove to me the true judge and jury of reality and truth why I should believe in you. They came to test him and asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Jesus did not answer with what they wanted. And you see the difference in the approach in the way Christ responded. He saw right through their facade. He called out the hypocrisy of their unbelief. And instead of granting them healing, even though they were every bit as undeserving as the penitent crowds, He declared over them not blessing, but a curse. He said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, verse 4, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So He left them and departed. Christ will not submit himself to the sovereignty of the court of human opinion. Christ will never submit himself to the sovereignty of the court of human opinion. Regardless of what our culture and its declining wickedness and its depraved state of spiritual consciousness says of Christ by way of skepticism, minimalization, or doubt, It will never be true, and Christ will never suffer it to be true, and Christ will never be mocked. He will continue to point out in the own curse we reap, in our own curse we reap upon ourselves as a people, should we indulge such audacious, sinful pride, he will pronounce upon us a curse if we do not repent. And indeed, an adulterous generation will be judged so in the hardness of their heart and ultimately be destroyed with no hope or recourse on that final day, unless and until they come to Christ like the broken crowds did, recognizing their lameness, their blindness, their crippled state of heart and body and mind, their muteness and any other manner of dysfunction. Again, the contrast of the approach of the people to Christ is stark here. And we see, even in the record of the narrative, the division of the sheep, the humble, dependent, and in some cases, dumb sheep, at all cases, dumb sheep, who need a wise leader to care, to nurture, to teach, and to direct and to provide for them are separated from the goats. The strong-willed, self-important goats who bludgeon forward in their depravity, striking at Christ as it were, and indeed enduring the fire and the whirlwind of judgment. Secondly, we notice the contrast of proclamation. How did Jesus answer these respective petitions? What was the approach of Christ to the people 
Well, we read in verse 30, as we've mentioned several times already, that the approach of Christ to the broken crowd was instant answered prayer. It says in verse 30, the great crowds came to him, bringing them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet. And what did he do? And he healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Notice the timing of this answered prayer is not always the case of the humble and broken. There was a woman who cried out to Christ repeatedly in the verses before. She said, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And at first Christ ignored her. She cried out again, and the disciples are seeking to send her away. She cries out yet again, and Christ says, Is it right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? She cries out again, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And here we have the response of Christ, the proclamation to her, the approach of Christ to the humble and broken. O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The prayers of the broken ultimately find their answer in Christ. Sometimes here, always later, sometimes sooner, sometimes there's a waiting period of imploring anguish. But in every case, God is glorified. And in every case, He has a purpose. And in every case, the approach of Christ to His people in chastisement, in answered prayer, in answering immediately, or waiting for a time, in every case, it is the approach of a compassionate, loving Father, Jesus Christ, who reaches out to His own and touches them where they cannot help themselves. Verse 32, Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with Me now three days. Now, conversely, what is the approach of Jesus Christ to the other faction that we're considering here? How does Jesus answer the Pharisees and Sadducees? His answer to them is signified by this phrase, the sign of Jonah. He answers them by saying, An evil and adulterous generation, 16.4, seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. This is the proclamation that Jesus declares over those who approach him in the frame of mind of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What could this mean, this sign of the prophet Jonah? Christ has already explained this in detail in Matthew chapter 12. Read with me verses 38 through 42. Again, the situation is similar. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Notice the circumstances are nearly identical. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given you, given to it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Those are the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and anyone else like-minded approached Christ, not in the humility and brokenness that we see in the crowds. They approached Him in, in a damnable frame of mind. What is this sign? The sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, first of all, it is the sign of Christ crucified and raised from the dead. That will take place in their experience before their very eyes. But this sign continues. It will not be that in that event, they will all of the sudden be enlightened and realize their plight necessarily. No, for those who remain hard and indeed unjustly condemn Christ, bring Him to the cross and are among those who are responsible for His murder indeed, which we all are included in that number. But specifically here, the Pharisees and Sadducees and those like-minded who remain hard of heart, For them, the sign of Jonah will ultimately be realized on the final day of judgment when God the Father calls as His witness those who repented in Nineveh at the voice of one man, one reluctant prophet who didn't even want to be there that said, repent, even though he didn't want them to, or this city, maybe he didn't even say repent now. My my memory escapes me. He pronounced judgment, that is, Jonah did on Nineveh. He said, this city will be destroyed. What happened? Well, there was a premium on sackcloth and ashes, and people repented and fasted and prayed. And they threw themselves like the crippled, blind, and mute, and the dysfunctional and crippled. They threw themselves at the mercy of Jehovah in their sinful brokenness, recognizing their condition, and they repented, and God stayed His hand of judgment. There will be another judgment day, full and final, no appeals. And on that day, there will be called as witness to those who remain hard-hearted at the point of their own death. For it is appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. There will be called a group of witnesses of the repentant faithful of Nineveh to stand against, testify against those who remain hard-hearted, to the self-evident, glorified, graciously revealed Christ in creation and in Scripture. The Queen of the South will be there too, and she will also be called to witness. And this is the seriousness of the situation. Do we honestly think there has ever been one who dies, who will stand before the judgment seat with any excuse? There will be none. Romans tells us as much. May we be found among those, let us pray this morning, who cry out in sackcloth and ashes, if this message lands on hard hearts. May we be found among those, not of the self-important, the self-confident, the self-sufficient, but among those who are admittedly poor in spirit, the blind and the lame. The approach of Christ, the attitude of Christ to the people is illustrated by contrast by two other phrases. Notice, first of all, in verse 32, Christ had compassion on the crowd because they had been with him for three days and now had nothing to eat. Listen to this, he says, And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. The compassionate Lord Jesus Christ, arms as it were of care, reached out to encircle 4,000 people 
I will not send them away until their needs, their basic needs, are provided for. The attitude of Christ to these was really something to behold. But notice by contrast, his message and his subsequent action related to the Pharisees and Sadducees. After he says in verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Notice what he does. So he left them and departed. If you find yourself among those at any stage in life, in a situation of heart and mind like this, where Christ delivers to you, maybe you hear it in the form of a sermon, maybe you hear it in the form of a past thought, a measure of truth that you have experienced at some point in life, even the testimony of Christ in a glorious sunrise, or in an advent of nature where His attributes are revealed, and He turns and leaves you. That is, you have a brief moment of affinity and affiliation with the truth, only to doubt it in a deep and abiding way later. This is indeed the most horrible situation of all. To hear the words of Christ come with stern judgment and to see Him walk away. The Pharisees and the Sadducees probably said good riddance. They probably hollered insults and perjuries at Him as He disappeared into the distance. But they did not realize that the blood that was running through the corpuscles of that man who was growing smaller in the distance as they shouted their words of blasphemy was their only hope of salvation. Thirdly, providence. Sovereign occasion and claims to sufficiency. What happens after Jesus has compassion on these people and demonstrates His unwillingness to send them away? Lest they grow hungry and faint on the way. Verse 33, the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in this desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? He said, They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into a boat, went to the region of Magadan. Here we have a testimony in this physical picture of the sufficient power of Christ to provide. In John chapter 6, we'll explore in future weeks in more detail related to this passage, Christ has identified Himself as the bread of life. Thus, this feeding of the 5,000 is another spiritual metaphor and a fitting one. There is no sustenance. There is no provision. There is no bread physically or spiritually aside from the providence of God, the provision in Christ Himself. That point to be continued. But by contrast, the Pharisees and Sadducees thought that they had something sufficient to offer. But notice how Christ characterized their teaching to the people. Verse 9, Do you not yet perceive Christ bringing the disciples' attention to the poison 
of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Do you not remember the five loaves and five thousand and how many baskets were gathered? Or the seven loaves and the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees made claim, propositional claim to information as well. They said, we have something worth listening to. We are perfectly happy and able to teach the crowds, but their provision, Christ identified, not as the satisfying, life-giving word of God, the inalterable, infallible, providential, spiritually invigorating word of Christ. But no, the counterfeit, the twisted, the fiat word of human claims, the poison-laced teaching of those who minimize Christ and exalt themselves, those who promote and publish and display their own character and person and ability instead of glorifying the God of Israel and marveling at Christ alone. So the sufficiency of the providential claims, the false teachers, over and against Christ is evident here. And we must notice the contrast so we are quickened in our discernment today because we certainly have plenty of false teaching to deal with in every age as they did then. And notice the sovereignty of this occasion as well. This miracle was planned to teach a lesson, not just to feed the belly, but to encourage and exhort the mind and the heart. And thus the gospel message is encoded, interwoven, in and around, fully saturating the events of Christ's life and work throughout all the gospels. Finally, this morning, persuasion. Notice the contrast of the response of the people relative to Christ. How were the people persuaded? Well, there were those in the crowd of the broken and lame again who said, as we've read, they wondered first when they saw the mute speaking. And I've identified that word wondered with marvel. I think it's a good substitute word to get ourselves into the shoes and the mindset and the persuasion of these brokenhearted that heard the words of Christ and saw and felt His healing touch so that the crowds marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking the blind scene, and it goes further to say, and they glorified the God of Israel. Just recall to your attention, Christ had referenced Isaiah 29 earlier in this chapter. At the end of Isaiah 29, there's a proclamation that among the children of Jacob, among the sons of Israel, there would be those, a remnant who would rise up and sanctify the Holy One of Israel. And so by way of at least partial fulfillment here, Isaiah 29 continues to unfold in reality before the eyes of those who had eyes to see as there were these who glorified the God of Israel, sanctified, honored, said, hallowed be thy name, the Holy One of God and His Messiah, Jesus Christ. They marveled at His work. On the other hand, though, There was the persuasion, again, of the proud and hard-hearted, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And of them, Jesus identified them as an evil and adulterous generation. 
Why does Christ use that adjective adulterous? We've mentioned this before. It bears repeating. Adultery is a reference to broken covenant and unfaithfulness to relationship. And here was a people who had a covenant relationship in their ethnic heritage, in their culture, with the Lord. And yet they were, there were many, and indeed most among them, who were found unfaithful to it. Have we had a measure of light? I was listening this week to one pundit who said, a Christian commentary on kind of news and culture, who said, historically, in his opinion, is a weighty one. He said, I know of no other nation that ever had more light, speaking of America. I think that's probably true, maybe with the exception of Israel itself. We are those who have been saturated, bombarded. We have come in contact time and again, over and over, so much so it's almost passe and cliche, the message of the gospel in one form or another, even when it's watered down here and there. Nevertheless, I venture you to take a poll and see if anyone in your neighborhood block hasn't heard the name of Christ. I'm sure you couldn't find nary a one. Yet that is not enough. If we have a measure of light and a measure of truth, but we deny the person and work of the author of that light and truth, the one who is that word, that light and truth, we are indeed counted among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, an adulterous generation who seeks for a sign, but none will be found except one of judgment. May we be found faithful. This message is a call in closing an application to repentance, to repentance for modern Western man, repentance from the academy to Facebook. There are those who in their academic learning find that they have legitimate standing to question Christ and maybe similar to the Pharisees and Sadducees. But there are also who are self-important by other standards who promote and identify themselves as this and that and the other and find their identity in any trivial thing aside from Christ. And in our social media culture, you find that this collective wearing of the heart of American culture on the sleeve of most is ubiquitous. We need to repent of both and either our intellectual and existential self-sufficiency. We have no self-sufficiency in our learning or ability, and we have no self-sufficiency in just who we are and our experience. We need to see ourselves in light of the truth as lame, blind, crippled, mute, aside from the resurrecting touch of the Savior. I asked questions at the beginning of this message, how we approach Christ. Again, let us consider Do we come to Christ to glorify or do we come to test Him? Do we come to Christ to marvel or do we merely question? In our quest for answers, do we surrender for the truth? Do we surrender and submit to Him and His means or are we shopping for something better? Are we admittedly poor in spirit, embracing with humility our desperate neediness or are we self-sufficient? Are we a self-confident skeptic? In beseeching Christ, are we more interested in mercy or are we more interested in magic? Most in our context today see Christianity through a lens of pluralism. They see Christianity as taking its rightful place 
only after securing the prerequisite permit from the humanistic regulatory bodies, of course, setting up shop in the strip mall of Western consumerism. Or imagine this picture, manning a booth at the World Religions Fair. We're like a marginalized sector of society that, sure, if we pay, grease the right palms and pay the right fees, we can set up a little booth and talk about our personal relationship with Jesus in a cacophony of other truth claims and noise. Both of these pictures are a poor illustration of the message of the kingdom. Christ is not a list of bullet points on a brochure for the self-centered seeker. We may be willing to be impressed like patrons of a magic show. Show me something, Christ. Show me a sign. I'll believe in you if you do this. Or if you're so great, why don't you come off that cross? Why don't you prove yourself to me? Why don't you answer my prayer the way I've demanded in the time frame I ask of you? But are we willing to be crucified with Christ? Galatians 2.20. Paul declares what the Christian life truly looks like. It doesn't look like a careful scrutiny of all the options and an educated decision by process of elimination where a self-aggrandizing, skeptical, proud person finally arrives at the knowledge of a truth with a certainty that he can verify in his own autonomous self-understanding. looks more like this. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh... I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the healing touch of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for healing in our physical man, but even more, the chastisement of our peace that was on the stripes, the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, his back, his brow that purchased for us peace, reconciliation with God, eternal life. May we never lose contact with our neediness. May we always be poor in spirit. May we reject the proud arrogance of those who claim anything for and of themselves. And may we plead mercy, only mercy, And Lord, I pray finally that you would equip your church upon the realization, the life-filling, Lord, the invigorating joy of our salvation, that you would equip your church to go indeed and to make disciples, to call for repentance when necessary, to deliver the hard truth of judgment when necessary, to expound the law, to raise the mirror of truth and holiness to a wicked generation, and to then, in the same breath, offer Christ and Christ alone as a sure and necessary means of salvation, His propitiation, His wrath-absorbing sacrifice, Christ and Christ alone. May we take this message wherever you call, Lord, and may we be unashamed, and may we be always faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.